Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of Creativity Lives Here. I'm so happy to have all of you with me today and to share today's conversation with you, which is with a really beautiful and inspiring human being and artist. His name is Rafael Corkill. He's an actor and a producer. And we actually met at the University of Southern California, where we were both studying theater. It's just so lovely. I feel so blessed that we are still friends and that we're in touch and that I have the great fortune of having him on my show. I think he is, like I said, he is such a wonderful human being and artist, and he's so committed to his creative work and his craft. So I feel like listening to him is such a treat. So just to give you a little bit more information on Raphael's work and what he has done in the world up until this point, he is currently producing a historical feature called The German King, which follows an award-winning short film of the same name that he co-produced and acted in. And he's also currently playing the lead in an independent feature called Manny, which is about a boxer who leads a secret life as a drag queen. And in addition to that, Raphael is also an avid voiceover actor, and he's worked on multiple video games, one of which is the upcoming video game Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War. And he's also narrated countless audiobooks and has won numerous awards for his narration work, including several headphones awards from Audiophile Magazine, an Audie Award, which is the audiobook equivalent of an Oscar, and an Odyssey Award. So as you can tell, he's a very successful and accomplished artist. And the wonderful thing about Raphael is that even though he is as successful as he is, he's also just such a humble and generous human being. And I so appreciate him being so open and generous in today's conversation. And it's a big conversation, so I'm not going to spend much more time on this introduction. I just want to get straight into sharing today's episode with all of you. So all I will still say is that I wish all of you an inspiring time listening to this conversation, and may your day be filled with creativity, joy, and beauty. So I'm from London, from the UK, um, and I spent my entire childhood there and teenagehood and then left when I was 18, 19 to come to America for university. I went to Princeton and then went to USC, which is where I met you, um, for grad school. So that's, and then a year, then three years after graduating from USC, I moved to New York, uh, which is where I'm now. So that's the kind of broad overview. But in terms of performance and acting and 
joining the industry, etc. That was a little bit more complicated because I didn't really do any acting at all throughout my entire childhood and even throughout college. Um, I come from a musical family. My parents are both classical musicians. Uh, my mother's a harpist. My father's a conductor and a percussionist. And I grew up as a cellist and a singer. So there was always performance there. Um, but neither of those things, um, singing or the cello, was my true passion in terms of performance. Um, and in fact, I always knew I wanted to be an actor, but it never was quite the right time. And I, I always thought and my parents encouraged me to get a good degree first so that then I have a way of supporting myself while I'm working to make it as an actor. So I didn't really do anything throughout high school, throughout college. And then the day I handed my senior thesis in at Princeton, which is this long dissertation you have to do in order to graduate, I went straight to New York and auditioned for this six-week intensive conservatory. And somehow they let me on. And it was there that I found out about MFA graduate acting programs. Um, I was already committed to a job in Nashville. So I was there just working for the following year after graduation from college and took a week off and came up to New York to audition for 10, 12 acting programs. And USC let me on. And so I moved to LA and it was the best decision to go to USC because of our guru acting teacher, Mary Jo Negro. And yeah. uh, then I stayed in LA for three years after graduation. It, LA was wonderful for SC, but horrible for me for living um, afterwards. I really was just very unhappy there. So I moved to New York now is about five years ago. And it's been just the best decision ever because I love it here. And yeah, since then, things have. The other big thing that happened was I got my green card in America, and that really opened up the film and TV industry. And yeah, things have started to really take off, which is awesome. Yeah, it's amazing how moving to a place where you feel like you really thrive and you feel really good there can just do so much for for your career and your creative spirit. So it sounds like moving to New York was definitely the the right idea for 100%. you. One hundred percent. It's like finding the right type of soil for the right type of plant. You know, there's not one soil yes. fits all um some thrive well i don't know anything about botany but you know i'm sure there are certain types <laughs> of uh you know nutrients or climate or whatever that really feeds some plants and really don't feed others um and i think as humans will evolve and a place that might be the right place for right now might not be the right place for us in five years or 10 years or 20 years and to not be afraid to Upstakes. Obviously, it's much tougher if you've got a mortgage and a family and kids in school and stuff. Um, but finding the right place for one at the right time is is huge. And I really feel New York is that for me. Yeah, I so agree with you. I've definitely experienced that in my own life, too. So um, it's really beautiful to hear that you found that for, for the time being, at least. Um, so I want to go back a little bit to something you just shared, which is that you... It sounds like you always knew that you wanted to be an actor, but you didn't take action on it until you graduated undergrad. So that is, that's so interesting to me. So first of all, I guess, how did you know that you knew and why did you wait so long to take action or how, how could you even have waited so long having like known this inside of you? All right. So here's the real story. So when I was 15, um, one of my sister's friends, my sister's two years younger than I am. And so she was 13 at the time. And one of her friends from ballet started doing all this cool stuff on British TV, um, you know, some British soap operas and TV commercials. 
And that was the first time I realized this is a real thing that you can do. Like, this isn't a fantasy. I know people my age, roughly, who are becoming actors, which is what I've always wanted to do. And I remember, so I went away to school and I remember my mother dropping me off at the train to go back to school. And 15 at the time, and I told her and I said, look, I'm ready. I'm going to finish my GCSEs, which are the big exams you do when you're 16. And you can then leave school in the UK if you want. I said, I'm going to finish my GCSEs. And then I'm going to go and become an actor and get an agent and, you know, go to drama school maybe. But I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to do this. What do you think? And uh, she slowed her roll and put the brakes and then slowly turned to me and said, no way. At the very least, get a decent undergrad. She didn't even say that. She said, at the very least, get your A-levels, which are what you do when you turn 18 in the UK. And then just get a good degree because then you can do whatever you want to do. Um, if acting doesn't work out and the chances of making it are so small that if it doesn't work out, then you have some kind of qualification to fall back on and raise a family comfortably, take care of yourself, etc. Um, and uh, she said that because she was, she was a freelance musician, so she did... Um, session work playing the harp for film soundtracks and tv commercials and backings for bands and things like this um so it was very much one job to the next exactly like it is for an actor as opposed to my father who was contracted with an orchestra so that was much more of a salaried job much more secure so my mother knew what it meant to be a freelance artist and how insecure and really worrying it can be um so she was really looking out for me and said, no, definitely not happening. And then perhaps being a Gemini, I thought, all right, well, then fine. I'm not going to do anything with acting. And so <laughs> I uh, didn't do anything with acting. I thought, I'm going to put this on the shelf, finish my school, get my degree. And then it felt the right time to take it down off the shelf and really explore it once I was done with, with university. And then as for how this is one thing that really is just out of my control because I really felt that acting for me is closer to a calling, closer to a vocation than it is a choice. Um, you know, it's almost, you know, I look at some of my friends and their careers, it could have been, they could have worked for an investment bank. They could have been a lawyer. They could have been, you know, a whatever commodities trader or something. They could have been any of those things. And it wouldn't really matter because they're smart and they work hard and they'll succeed. But the specific industry that they've chosen is almost a little bit random. Um, for me, it was 100% um, deeply known from as honestly as early as I can remember that I knew I had to be an actor. Um, yeah. And it's weird because the thing is acting, the industry takes so much that I think unless you have that, it's just going to, there are so many reasons not to pursue acting. Um, so I'm just really blessed and grateful that I have this. I really think of it as a vocation, as a real calling to become an actor that I've always felt. Yeah. And just, just hearing this, first of all, this is a really beautiful and empowering story. And um, secondly, I'm just curious what that must have been like for you to kind of have this knowing inside you your entire life, but not doing anything. What was it like for you then to actually start physically acting for the first time? So, 
What did what that did feel, it feel like? like? Well, I wasn't very good when I started. So it was jarring. Mm. You know, when you first start, yeah. sometimes there's such a gap between your taste, like what you aspire to be able to do, and then the reality of what you can actually do. So I think when you and I first met at USC, I was in the midst of just floundering and not having a clue what I was doing, really doing terrible work in our student shows. Um, you know, meeting Mary Joan really set me on the right course because she just taught what I was looking for, which is a core technique, uh, the same kind of thing that I had as a singer and as a cellist. Um, so once I started getting on that path, I was able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But even when you're still learning the technique, you can't do it properly. And so it's really awkward and, you know, it takes a lot of resilience and faith, I think, to keep going because you're on stage and it's one of the worst feelings to be on stage, everyone watching you and you're doing terrible work and you know, you're doing terrible work and you can see the audience's faces and they just think, what is this? And then you see your, your fellow actors and they're just thinking, Oh my God, what is he doing now? And uh, it's really a kind of a horrifying experience. Um, But also part of it is I think it toughens you up a little bit. Um, And then you come through and you, you learn, all right, this is not working. I need to go more into this direction and to have a guide, you know, someone like Mary Jones, someone like my parents, someone like my mother, who isn't an actor, but has a musical performance background, of course. And there's a lot of connections and similarities to have someone guiding you and coaching you and encouraging you is really, really valuable. But no, when I first started acting, um, yeah, was uncomfortable and, uh, and just bad. But, you know, eventually you get to get closer and closer to where you want to go. Thank you so much for sharing that, because I feel like um, a lot of people have a creative calling and then they begin pursuing it and they realize they're maybe not as good as they thought they were in in their minds. And then they think that that's a sign that they should stop. Um, But just taking your story as an example, I feel like... um, that's not at all a sign that you should stop. It's just kind of a necessary phase that you have to go through until you start getting a little bit good. And then you start getting better and better and better. Would you agree with that? I agree with that. I will say though, that, you know, that as a creative person, you know, there are different levels of ability. You know, there are some people who probably realize that, okay, I've really given this 100%. I've given five years to this. I've given 10 years to this. And I've really just, I'm realizing that this isn't for me. I'm just not getting the kind of work, the kind of performances out of myself that I would really hope to do. Um, You know, and so I wonder if maybe then it's not some kind of failure to move on. And in fact, I I sometimes think that people who do seek to become whatever, painters or dancers or athletes or something. Um, You know, it's really important to pursue it to the very best of your ability. And then if you don't make it, it's not a bad thing because you'll have learned so much along the way. And you can then use all that experience and then, you know, start something new. And along the way, you might find the right path, um, that you're supposed to be on the right job that you're supposed to do, whether it's now moving into teaching or something, Um, you know, everyone has their own unique path and yeah, it would be a mistake for someone to not give it a go or at least not commit to whatever their passion is. Um, 
you know, out of fear that it's not going to work. I think you really want to commit to just doing it, just not, not trying or giving it a go, but just like doing it 100%. And then if it doesn't work out, if, it's, if you're not as successful as you want to be, or you realize that it's just not the right path for you at that time, then to open up to other things. Because uh, I don't think anyone should or wants to be a starving artist. I, I, I personally don't think there's any glamour or glory in, you know, like suffering. Um, yeah, I agree. You know, and I think some artists, some yeah. actors, some musicians, you know, it's almost like a source of pride or something to think that, you know, I'm just living this horrible lifestyle. It's just not, for me. I don't, and I don't think it really produces very good work either. Um, so look, it's a really tricky thing because I don't know if everyone can make it. You know, it's a really tough thing to say, but uh, that's not to say you shouldn't give 100% to going for it. Yeah. And I think there's also different levels of making it. I feel like it's not all or nothing. Like you could still, I don't know, let's say you're a painter, you could still, you know, be painting while you also have another job or um, I, I don't feel like it necessarily has to be so, so black or white. For sure. For sure. For sure. And look, something yeah. like painting, something like performance, you know, yeah. it might take a while. Let's say a painter, for example. I can absolutely imagine that their vision that they're working on in their 20s, their 30s, whatever their artistic um, sensibility is, it, it could be too early. You know, the market, the, you know, taste, whatever might just, it might be too ahead of its time. Um, and so the thing is to keep on working and then maybe later on in their 30s or their 40s or their 50s, it'll become time. I bet that's the case for actors as well. That, And I know this for myself, actually. I've heard this a lot of people who are respecting the industry say this, that it's about aging in. So some people, just talking about male actors, because that's, that's what I am, that's, that's mostly what I know, you know, that you get some male actors who are just beautiful in their, in their teens and their 20s and their 30s, just, you know, just stunning to look at. Um, I was never one of those. And, but there are also other male actors who have a real strength and a real power. Uh, um, and they tend to have the roles in their mid to late 30s into their 40s, 50s, and then onwards. Um, and sometimes there's not much of an overlap. Those really successful young actors don't, maybe don't have that transition into that older actor. And so that's one thing that I believe for myself is that year after year, I'm aging in closer to, um, to myself as an actor, if that makes sense. I love that. Kind of like a fine wine. Oh, yes. Petrus, <laughs> Raphael Petrus. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into the creative projects that you are working on right now. Um, so I know that you're actually working on two major projects. One is you're producing and you'll also be starring in a historical feature called The German King which is based on a short film that you co-produced co and acted in. And then you're also playing the lead in an independent feature about a boxer who leads a secret life as a drag queen. And that film is called Manny. So I'd love to speak with you about both of those projects. Um, let's start with The German King. Definitely. So The German King is based on a true story, actually. It's a true story that's never been told about this uh, Cameroonian king uh, 
And Cameroon before the First World War was a German colony. And the king of Cameroon, his name was Rudolf Dwala Mangabel. And on the eve of World War I, he rose up against German colonial oppression led by Kaiser Wilhelm and successfully managed to get rid of the German powers in Cameroon. Um, what really complicates the story is that this king, this African king, Rudolf Dwala Mangabel, was raised in Germany with Kaiser Wilhelm as brothers. It was a sim- I know, wow. it was a similar kind of thing to Game of Thrones where some rival power takes on the sun of another rival power, kind of as their ward, but really kind of as their hostage. So basically stay in line or bad things will happen to your son. Um, and then also to try and inculcate that son into the cultural ways of the, you know, the colonial power, whatever. So he's got this real, this African king has a real sense of German connection to Germany and to his brother at the same time as realizing that actually he's African and his people are being oppressed. And then the third complicating factor is at this time, Kaiser Wilhelm has Dwala Mangabel's son as his ward. So Dwala Mangabel has all these conflicting loyalties and goals and aspirations for himself, for his family, and for his country. And it's a really powerful story that has really deep relevance to where we are right now. I, in the short film, played Kaiser Wilhelm. And we shot it in Cincinnati about a year and a half ago. And I co-produced it as well. And it's been doing really, doing really well on the film festival circuit. It was just screening at Cannes. And, it's, uh, and now we've got the feature film that we're fundraising for right now. And the script was just a finalist at this well-known script uh, festival uh, at the Rhode Island International Film Festival called Flickers. And that's basically what we're doing with that film right now is we've expanded the story and uh, I'm a full producer on the German King feature film. And our director, Arde McCormack, is leading the charge in really getting this story told. Wow. First of all, congratulations. It sounds like you've already accomplished a lot with it. And um, it's awesome to hear that you're taking it somewhere too. Yeah. And just getting it seen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I love also, I love that you're telling an untold story. I feel like, I mean, I feel like there's so many stories in history that we are not aware of. So the fact that the film centers around one of those stories is really powerful. Absolutely. The director, writer, and main producer, Arde, who I just mentioned, um, mm-hmm. has he's from Sierra Leone originally, but has been in America as an actor for years now. And he's really got a treasure trove of all these stories from the continent, from Africa, um, from Great Britain, of minorities who have just been um, ignored or not told or not even recognized. So he's, uh, he's really, he's got all these scripts, all these stories uh, that are just ready and ripe to be told. Because there are so many that are just completely ignored. Mm, it sounds like you found a really amazing collaborator to work with. Yeah, he's a special guy. We uh, yeah. we worked on a video wow, game cool. together four or five years ago. Oh wow! And we were playing these South African mercenaries, just shouting day in day out, <laughs> and uh, we bonded over yelling obscenities. <laughs> and now, yeah, now we're collaborating on this. 
That's very cool. Um, I'm curious also to hear from you what inspired you to become a producer and um, how that's uh, impacted your work as an actor. What a great question. I always thought I never wanted to do have anything to do with the entertainment industry apart from as an actor because it is a little bit of a shady industry and it does tend to attract some <laughs> funny, you know, not terribly trustworthy characters. And I thought, I love what I do as an actor, but do I really want to mess around in the business side of it where it's very murky and I don't really care about directing. I mean, I'm not really interested in doing that. I don't see myself as a writer. Um, you know, I definitely don't want to become an agent or anything like that. Um, I just want to do acting. But then I realized that actually, if you're producing your own work, it gives you a lot more power, a lot more influence, a lot more control over what you want to do. Um, it's empowering, as you say. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you're going to suddenly command everyone to do what you want to do, but it gives you a little bit more of a sense of ownership over your own career. Let me own that. It gave me a lot more of a sense of ownership over my own career. So instead of just being employed from one project to the next, um, purely as an actor, I really hope that producing will give me a chance to, first of all, tell stories that I really love and care about, and then also have a little bit more of a say over the direction of my career. Um, whereas just being purely an actor, I don't know, you, it's just, it's tough. I, I just don't want to kind of just flit from one project to the next and then maybe you don't work for two and a half years. And then all of a sudden you have another project. I think if, you're, if I'm producing, it gives me a lot more, well, really opportunity to perform and tell the stories that I want to tell. It's a, uh, yeah, I think it, it's just interesting. The more I learn about the business side of the industry as well, whereas I just thought it's horrible. I don't want anything to do with it. It's actually kind of interesting. Like there are some really intriguing elements of the entertainment industry and at the top of the entertainment industry there are some really really gifted highly 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 intelligent people just as there are in the top levels of finance or law or medicine um you know the talent really does rise to the top and i'm just interested by what they want to do um and the way they see the world yeah so yeah, I think it's it's producing is it's it's relatively new for me. I've only been doing it for about a year and a half, two years. Um, but it's uh, it's something I never thought I'd do. But so far, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, and hearing you speak, it sounds like it's something that you want to continue pursuing. Yeah, I think so. Who was it? I can't remember who it was saying, but you know, the industry is a market. You know, it's it's it's. Um, you know, it's a market and as actors, you're an asset. You're an asset like aluminum or some kind of financial instrument. Ultimately, you have a value attached to who you are, to what you can bring to a project. That's obviously really seems really disheartening or um, objectifying or something to think that, well, okay, I, Raphael, am, you know, I have a value attached to my name. You know, no, I'm a human being. I'm an actor. Blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm, you know, way more than that. And that's true. But in terms of the business of the industry, it's, um, I think it's, it's actually quite important to recognize how the financial side of it works, um, especially because just the more knowledge you have, the more understanding and, and it's empowering to have that kind of thing. Um, and then from an acting standpoint, I think you can just, um, yeah, I just think it's more empowering. 
to to just to, to get more involved in the business side of it. Yeah, and I, it's, it's interesting as well. Yeah, and you know, I know that a lot of um, people who aren't involved in the entertainment industry they 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 sometimes wonder what exactly the work of a producer entails. So, I'd, and I know that can differ from from project to project, but I'm curious to hear from you what has the actual work entailed um, in your producing work? Nice, perfect. So yeah, producer is such a broad phrase and it can mean broad term. It can mean so many different things. And there's a bit of background, for example, and none of these are completely consistent. You know, as you mentioned, from project to project, these terms can vary in terms of their duties, responsibilities, contributions, etc. But an executive producer, broadly speaking, brings money on board or is responsible for money. So, for example, an executive producer for an independent film is usually an investor. They're bringing, you know, 500000 um to a project. And that EP, that executive producer, now owns a percentage of the project. And they might have some creative contribution, but often they'll be a little more like a silent partner. Similarly, for a big studio project, the executive producer, it's not his or her money, but they are managing the studio's money. And so they, they're, it's much more of a business position. They're kind of making macro decisions on, um, you know, how much money the, the project can have. A producer, just a general producer, is responsible for, it's not really a creative position, um, like a writer or an actor or an editor or something, cinematographer. It's much more about coordinating, just making sure the thing gets made. So coordinating locations, hiring the right people, getting the right equipment, whatever the logistical stuff needs to be done for projects, that's what a producer does. Um, just getting the whole team together, just basically producing the project. Um, and then, then you have different levels of producers. So a co-producer, for example, is going to be subordinate to a full producer, and they're going to be delegated smaller tasks like um, you know, finding a cinema to screen a, uh, you know, trailer in or something or, you know, do a screening for critics. Um, so small as us. So there are all these, and they, again, it varies from project to project. Um, but producers, they're not a creative role. They're much more on the logistical managerial side of things. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying yeah. that. So I actually want to jump over now to your other big mm. project, which is Manny. Um, so can you share a little bit about that? So. Yeah, definitely. So Manny is this boxer who has undergone a series of traumatic life events and is now for the first time starting to explore something that he's really hidden away his entire life, mm. which is his desire and draw to perform as a drag queen. What's really interesting about this project is that Manny is torn between two completely opposite poles, the ultra-masculine world of fighting, of um, the, the, the boxing gym and the coaches and the uh, you know, predatory promoters and just the you know, fist-to-fist combat, this kind of ultra-masculine world of fighting, and then the performance of ultra-femininity, which is one of the characteristics of drag. So, for example, I'm sure you've seen RuPaul's Drag Race or something. Drag queens tend to take what they think is um, kind of stereotypical female um, characteristics like big hair, high heels, flattering dresses, et cetera, et cetera, big makeup, and kind of take it to an extreme of, um, of, of femininity. 
um, in order to really inhabit uh, what is in their imagination, what what they think it is to be a woman. Um, and so, but both of those elements, you know, the the drag performance and then also the boxing experience have elements of performance in it. Um, and Manny is just trying to find where he is in the middle. He wants to be a boxer. He, he is a boxer. He loves that um, pugilism. But he's also got this thing that he just needs to express, which is a really profound um, draw towards drag that obviously the boxing community can't even begin to wrap their minds around. And he can't feel ready to express that to his coach, to, his, uh, to, his, you know, to the rest of his gym. Um, so his identity is really being pulled in two completely opposite directions. And I really wonder if, you know, everyone, maybe not quite to that extent, but we do sometimes feel pulled in opposite directions, you know, pressures from family, pressures from society, um, pressures from friends, from work, whatever it is, versus our own personal inner lives, um, drawing us in another direction. I, I wonder if we all wrestle with things like that from time to time. I was actually just thinking about how this story is something that I feel that a lot of people can relate to and how we all have these sides where we feel like maybe in, in one of our communities, we can express that side. But in, in another community that we have, say our family or a certain group of friends, like we have to keep that side of ourselves hidden. So it really sounds like a story that that people could relate yeah. to. I think so. I think it's really sad that there's such a pressure to conform to an image. I'm really blessed and grateful that my parents n didn't ever push me in that direction. Um, that you have to get this kind of job or you have to express yourself in this kind of way. Um, you know, they were really open to me just being me. And so I'm really grateful for that. I think a lot of people don't have that luxury. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, and, and and it also sounds like this is an incredibly complex character that you have. And I, I believe you've shot a sizzle reel, That's right? That's right, exactly. Already, yeah. So, I mean, you must have already done um, quite a bit of character preparation work just for that. And, and what was that process like for you? Uh, really an extraordinary experience. I mean, just dressing up in drag, wearing heels, having the full face of makeup for the first time was nerve-wracking really and then on top of that i sing and i have a background as a singer but it's an entirely different style and context for performance you know singing solo as a drag artist a cappella, versus singing in the choir which is what i did as a child so yeah that was really really nerve-wracking i had a kind of mentor on the project um her name is madison ts she's well known within the drag community she's based out of atlanta she's a trans actress and really supported me and i learned a lot from her during during the shoot and in the film she plays my mentor as well she plays manny's mentor um so that was really 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 valuable and then so we have me in drag singing in this club situation so really really doing it um, and then on the flip side, we shot some boxing stuff in a professional gym in Houston. And I have a background as a boxer, but I'm obviously not a professional. And the guy who we were working with, um, Donald Reed, is a pro boxer out of Houston. And just working with him for a day, it's... Here's what's interesting about 
drag and boxing is that it requires everything. You can't half-ass either boxing or drag. The moment you try to do it, everyone will just see through it in a nanosecond. So you have to commit to it 100%. And it takes a lot of honesty to really do both. So for example, boxing training is so unbelievably hard. It pushes everyone to their limit that it's almost like looking to an abyss when everything is screaming at you, just stop, I need a break, give me a, I can't do this anymore. You have to look at yourself and think, what kind of person am I? Am I the kind of person who gives up now and just concedes defeat? Or do I find another level and keep going? That requires such a, such a huge amount of honesty and self-recognition to survive as a, as a boxer. Um, and the same with drag performance as well, to think, do I have it within me to find the courage to get up there and face my fears and perform in front of a crowd of people and just trust that they'll accept me? Um, you know, both, both of those require deep, deep courage. And yeah, I have a huge amount of respect for members of both communities. I wonder almost did, did the level of physicality that this role required and because you had to go in so wholeheartedly in a way did that almost make it a, a little bit easier because it's like you almost didn't have the option to hold back does that oh. make sense i mean look you know the box like, i'm I, I have a background as a boxer but that doesn't make me a boxer do you know what i mean and um you know but the but the thing is i don't know if I, i'm gonna throw this out there you know giving 100 as an actor requires a lot, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of courage to really go for it. And I will just say this, that I just really connected with both Donald Reed and Madison T.S. Because even though I'm not a drag queen and I'm not a professional boxer, there were characteristics that each of us shared in terms of mm. wanting to do something that requires courage and is a little bit risky that yeah, allowed us to connect with each other. And even though we came, you know, com from completely different backgrounds, countries, um, you know, we were still able to connect with each other in a really special way. So, yeah, it's both of those things are, yeah, it's a real journey, a real blessing to be able to explore these things and, and inhabit it as an actor. It's beautiful. It sounds almost like you being able to connect with both of those mentors allowed you to connect to your role ultimately 100% 100% and it's so much but I mean I bet this is the same with everything success is of course about how much you bring yourself and how much work you're willing to put in how much you're willing to sacrifice etc etc but you still have to be surrounded by good people who are also bringing quality work and also supporting you and just focus themselves so yeah these guys are just doing top level stuff in their own specific um, lives and uh, yeah working with them was uh, just a huge bonus and a huge gift to the to me and to the project yeah it sounds like it would you say this is the most challenging character that you've ever played Ooh, that's a good one um, you know I think each character has their own challenges obviously some characters I'm just much closer to so for example I had a role on the blacklist this TV show on NBC And I'm playing a you know, white guy in his 30s with a good education and, and a background in finance. And you know, that's not a million, million miles. And he's British. 
and uh, that's not a million miles away from me. So, you know, it doesn't require a huge amount of um, transformation to play him. Uh, for sure, Manny, for sure, Kaiser Wilhelm. Um, yeah, those do require... Yeah, those do require a bit more of a journey. But yeah, it's, it's, um, that's one of the joys of acting, is, is learning about communities that I might not even have known about. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh my gosh, yes. People did do this back in history, or people do do this right now, or maybe in the future people will do this. Um, that constant, being an actor, I think, is a constant process of discovery and being open to new things. Yeah. And that's a real joy. I think really ultimately I'm just, I don't know if it's curiosity that's putting a nice spin on it, or maybe just nosy. Um, but I'm just, <laughs> ultimately, I'm just really fascinated by, by other people, by what drives them to do what they do, what's behind the choices that they make, how they ended up here doing this rather than that doing something else. It's yeah, even at a dinner party, it's one of the most interesting things just to, just to listen to a person. Cause even if they seem really obvious or clear on the surface, you know, you're at a, you know, there's just a guy, um, you know, a successful lawyer who went to Harvard Law School and Harvard for undergrad. You know, you could make so many assumptions about him. Um, but I think there's so much beneath the surface that you can really get into. But obviously, you know, you have to be respectful as an actor and not just, you know, pry. Yeah, but I, I agree with you. And I, I think what you, what you just said also um, reminds me how I always feel that many actors, especially many of the good ones, are also incredibly compassionate because of their genuine interest in other human beings. Yeah, 100%. Um, there's the opposite. Yeah. There's definitely the opposite. I mean, I've definitely worked with actors <laughs> yes. who, yeah. I wonder if there are two types of actors, the actors who are just really interested in other people. And then the actors who are just really interested in themselves. And, uh, you definitely get some actors, some really, really successful actors who, you know, don't come across as extremely curious. Um, but they have a real interesting look or energy or something. Um, but I will say this, that the really high quality actors, the one, at least this, the actors I respect the most really do have a curiosity about the world around them. Um, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I look, I bet you've, in your interviews, you've come across the same thing. People who you expect having launched this type of company or done this with their lives in the same way that I would, you think, oh yeah, I bet this person's had this kind of journey. And then you start talking to them and then you realize it's something completely different. Another thing I'm really curious about your work, Rafe, is that I I know you work in different mediums. So you work in, in film and theater, um, but you also do voiceover work for video games and, and you're also an audiobook narrator. Yes. So I'm just curious, and I know this is a really big question and we could probably have a whole episode on this, but what does your preparation process look like for each of those mediums or how does it differ for okay, well, for audiobooks, because uh, I've done a lot of audiobooks, um, so inspiration for that has kind of evolved over the years. Um, to begin with, I used to really, in a very detailed way, mark up and make notes on the text as I'm reading it through for the first time. Um, in a way, almost plotting out how I would want to say certain sentences, so underlining certain words or having a note saying question 
um, next to it just to remind me that this is a question. Um, sometimes, and those audiobooks turned out very well, but I think what I've started to do over the years, as I've, as I've become more comfortable and more experienced with my work as a, as a narrator, um, is just, of course, prep it and read it through closely uh, the first time before recording, but then allow myself more freedom in the moment to realize going with the flow and trusting my instincts more. So instead of just making notes and kind of pre-directing myself, um, my process now is freer. Um, you know, and then if there's a character, um, you know, just trusting my instincts a lot more in terms of character creation as I'm going. So really just whatever image first comes to my mind with when a new character comes up on the page, going with that. Um, of course, that's open to development. If 50 pages later, it reveals that actually he's from Liverpool and I thought he was from London, then all right, then we'll shift it. But, uh, but yeah, so yeah, so just broadly speaking, I, when I get the text for an audiobook, I read through it um, in a detailed way the first time, making notes for when certain characters appear so that as I'm reading ahead, um, so basically I'm reading about half a line ahead of what I'm actually saying, if that makes sense, um, in order to have a fluency, in order to anticipate what's coming up next and just have a nice flow. Um, and so when I finish a sentence, I'm already halfway through the next sentence. Uh, and so I'll make notes on character voices to remind me, okay, this guy, John is coming up now. So I'll, I'll prep that stuff. Um, I have a home studio now, which is where I'm doing this from. And so I'm also able to just record from home now, which is a lot easier uh, than going into a studio, which is what you would normally do. And um, I don't edit them. I just basically record all the, uh, the, raw, the raw audio and then send it off to an editor. They then put it together. And then if there's any corrections I need to make, they'll send me a, a pickups package and then I'll record that. Um, but the genres very super widely and that's again one of the best things because i again i get to learn about a huge range of different topics um so for example this over lockdown i've recorded a couple of world war ii books um that were just so one's called the iron sea that was about britain's naval warfare against germany during the second world war stories i had no idea about but are so moving and heroic and just exciting um that these are stories I'll take with me for the rest of my life. Uh, I read a lot of fiction, some quite literary, abstract fiction, some more genre sci-fi or thriller type fiction, um, some romance fiction, which I guess is extremely, extremely popular um, as a genre. <laughs> and yeah, it's just really, it's a cool, it's just, again, a huge blessing to be able to do audiobooks um, as, as an actor. But then I also do uh, video games, as you mentioned. So um, there's the new, I'm sure you're aware of the franchise, Call of Duty. It's this, what they call an FPS, yeah. like a first-person shooter, um, where you go around and, um, I guess, you know, go on missions and stuff. And they have a new one coming out, and it's called Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War. And it's I'm playing a bunch of different Russian characters. In it, some KGB officers, some Russian soldiers, and uh, yeah, very exciting project. I recorded that from my studio as well. And uh, yeah, the video game stuff is just growing and growing and growing every year. Um, I think that's a really, really interesting industry for everyone to keep their eye on. 
um, in a way it could blend with live action and really become a, mm, a new yeah. a new medium in its own right. So we're almost nearing the end of our conversation. And before we wrap up, I still wanted to talk a little bit about how you tap into your peak creative potential. So it's clear that you're an incredibly prolific creator. And what I'm really curious about is how you nurture your creative spirit, both physically, mentally, and spiritually. Wow, beautiful. Yeah, well... I meditate twice a day, oh, wow. um, which I couldn't do without. Uh, I meditate in, in the morning. I get up and have breakfast and you know just wake up. And then after about 20 minutes, I'll go back to bed and meditate for about 15, 20 minutes. And I do the same when I go to bed as well before falling asleep. And if I don't do it, uh, I do it every day because if I don't do it, it's almost like um, – you know when the visual and the sound of a TV show gets out of sync so that the lips are moving, but the sound is a fraction behind or a fraction ahead. And so it's not perfectly synced up and it's the most distracting thing. Um, I feel like that. I feel like that with myself. So it's like I'm slightly out of sync with myself or slightly out of sync with the world, slightly out of sync with the universe. And it's like I'm um, just catching up if i don't meditate in the morning i feel like i'm catching trying to catch up with myself all day um so that's huge is that i definitely meditate just to get everything synced up and then in terms of i mean there's like certain technical things that i'll do to prepare for a role to make sure that my creative juices are flowing and that i'm ready to you know really inhabit a role but then the big thing is when i'm actually performing and this is quite new for me um, is then letting go of that control. I'd always known that that's the thing you have to do, um, is that you do all the preparation, you do all the work, you do all the mind thinking type stuff. But then when it comes to actually performing, you just have to let it be, let it, let it flow. Um, I always knew that intellectually, but for the longest time, I didn't really trust it. Like I didn't really do it. Um, and it's only recently, more recently within the past year or so, that I really feel now, maybe even more recent, it's an ongoing thing. It's getting better and better all the time, but now able to just trust and know that having done so much work, developing myself as an actor or as whatever, um, to know that now there's a, a deeper part of me that knows better than my brain, if that makes sense. Um, and that's like, a, that's what I do now is just surrender control and just let the performance be what the performance is going to be. And just know it's going to be great. I love that you bring that up. And it's so interesting that you mentioned that because that's definitely something that I've been playing around with as well. And it really does take practice because it sounds so easy, like, oh, yeah, just let go and, and trust that, you know, let the work work through you. Um, but really doing it in practice, it it is tricky and it takes so much trust and and faith and in a way trust that something greater is going to move through you yeah for sure it's because when you care so much you just really want it to be good like it has to be good and the temptation is therefore to try and make it good like i'm going to make this be really good and it could like and there's it can still be really good but i think there's an additional element that can come in when you when i let go of that and then an extra 
energy or creativity or happy accident or divine inspiration, whatever you want to call it, can come in. And it's in the actual performance, audition, whatever, then allowing for that to come in. That's that's it. Yeah, absolutely. And I've noticed that the times when that I can really surrender to that is is often when my best work comes out. Well, no, yeah. yeah. There's no sub. There's no substitute for it. Yeah. Yeah. Also, really cool. There's a really yeah, cool. There's ahead. a really amazing book that I read. Sorry, no, just while I'm thinking it. of it, because what really helped me called the Inner Game of Tennis. Ooh. Um, I'd re and this was really a key to kind of getting to a next stage, and the idea is that there are two aspects to ourselves. You know, there's the kind of conscious, controlling ego um, place, which is which is really necessary necessary um if only just to do the practice um and have the desire and the ambition to do something like it, it helps to have an ego to want to be the best that you can be even to want to be better than other people that's not inherently a bad thing but that can also be the nature of that controlling self can then also get in the way and block and tighten up the true uh free performance um, and the reason he calls it the inner game of tennis is that's a classic thing for all tennis players from club amateurs to seasoned pros is trying to, f- trying to get out of your own way so that if, so the example he uses is for someone like Michael Jordan or Roger Federer or someone, they call it playing in the zone. Um, and there are all these different words for it where you're just playing outside of your head or it was like, I wasn't even on planet earth, something like that, where it's just pure flow. And you can't manufacture that. And so instead, what I seek to do is to then, and what he encourages in the book is to let go of that controlling element, um, which is all bound up with, oh my God, now the pressure's on. Wow, just an amazing shot there. Now, oh my God, am I going to be able to, oh my, there's people watching, am I going to be able to recreate it? That busyness um, that goes on upstairs, that's not helpful. And that can really get in the way. And finding a sense some people listen to their breathing or feel their breathing i just feel my my core my my center space and that really helps settle my mind and uh and get in touch with a really truly creative part and interestingly i can imagine that your meditation practice also supports you with that yeah very much so it's exactly just seeking to get out of one's head um and listen much more closely to one's inner and again, the thing is, it's, I think most of this conversation, we've found that it's not one thing or the other. It's not black and white. It's often a balance. And I think it's the case with this. Having your mind, having your ego can really push you to do uh, do great things. You know, you know, you kind of want to just chill tonight, but actually, no, I really, really have the ambition of whatever it is you want to do. And so I'm going to make myself do it. You know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it really can push us to work extra hard but uh when it comes to the actual performance then it's important to let that go beautifully said and yeah i agree with you i mean the mind the ego it's not a bad thing i just think um we live in a society and we receive very often receive a kind of education that teaches us mainly to use our mind and it's just like you say bringing in the balance of also using other parts of our being that's completely true yeah so much of our culture in western europe in the united states is all mind focused like you know like suck it up <laughs> you know mind over matter 
Um, it's all about kind of using your mind to control. Yeah. Um, and look, it has its advantages, but I think ultimately if it's not helpful, if it's getting you in your way and it's stopping you, if it's stopping me from achieving my full potential, then we can look at that. Yeah. I'm really curious, what kind of meditation practice do you, do you do? Is it a specific one or? You know, it's not like a specific school. I've had, I've worked with many different practitioners, practitioners of different um, kind of philosophies over the years. And it's kind of a synthesis of what I've learned and what works for me. Some of it's just about, again, dropping into myself and just quieting my mind. Some of it's about putting up a prayer, surrender, different things. Um, but it's my own, it's not, I don't do a guided meditation. I know some people find that really helpful. They put in the headphones and just follow a, a guided meditation. I don't really do that. I, ha I just have a, a, like a series of things that I like to do. And uh, yeah, it takes about 15 minutes. And some days it's, it's sometimes it's so easy just to, just to be peaceful. And other times it's, it's not as easy. It's really interesting. And there might not be anything that I'm very aware. Oh, wow. That's why it's harder today. Or that's why it's easier today. Um, it's just one of those things. I don't know. One of those funny things. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So um, one more question before we dive into our quick fire round. This information is going to be in the show notes, but where can the listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Nice. Well, I have a website that I update. It's www.raphaelcorkill.com, R-A-P-H-A-E-L-C-O-R-K-H-I-L-L.com. I have an Instagram account, uh, which is at rcorkill, and it's the same handle for my Twitter. But really, my Twitter just is what I post on Instagram. And, and that's about it. I think those are the three social media um, that, I, that I use. Perfect. Wonderful. Are you ready for the quick fire round? <sighs> Leia, bring it on. <laughs> You've been waiting your whole life for this. Uh, yeah, you know, I've been preparing. I've been preparing. <laughs> I've taken notes. I've got, no, this is going to be hilarious. This is fun. Cool. Let's do it. All right. Question number one. What mm -hmm. is your favorite creativity inspiring snack? Whoa. Let's go for coffee. Does that count? That's not really a snack, but that really does gear me up and get me in the mindset for, for whatever. Um, but a snack, mm, mm, I'm not a snacker, to be honest. Uh, like I don't really have treats and stuff. Uh, can we go with coffee? Coffee counts. Actually, a few people have said coffee and it's my answer to that question as well. So it counts. Yeah. Oh, it's night and day before coffee and after coffee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. When is your peak creative time? In the morning, afternoon, evening, or at night? Oh, uh, mornings. I'm a morning person. Really, I love it. Although what I do find as well is if I'm learning lines or working on a scene, something like that, to read it just before I go to sleep um, yeah. or to run through the lines as I'm memorizing. Like, I really think that it then my, I, in fact, I'm almost, who knows? I've never had a test or whatever, but I really believe my mind is working on it while I sleep. Because when I get up the next morning and I run through the lines again, they are a trillion times better than they were the night before. So I'm sure something's, I know something's going on overnight. So yeah, I'm sure when I'm sleeping, maybe that's the peak creative time. I don't know. 
Um, but in terms of how I feel mornings, mornings, definitely up and then feeling sharp and ready to, ready to do it. Yeah. And I agree with you about the lines. I'm exactly the same. And if I only have like two days to learn lines, if I do it the night before, that makes such a difference. Huge. Absolutely. Yeah. I really think with something like lines, probably a lot of things, little and often is better than a long trying to memorize lines for like an hour and a half, yeah. but doing it like once or twice a day, I think to just keep checking in and progressing that little lot, little and often yep. is really, uh, is really the way to go. Chocolate or coffee? Coffee for sure. Uh, but I do love chocolate and I'll have it on the weekends. <laughs> That's your um, chocolate time. That is. Yeah. Yeah. Chocolate on the weekends. Yeah. But coffee I would really struggle to live without coffee, <laughs> but I could <laughs> go without too. chocolate. Live and be creative. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like I've often asked people, if you could go without, if you were to give up one of these sugar, so like sugar added, you know, in terms of chocolate cakes, you know, added to coffee, whatever, to go without sugar, to go without coffee or to go without booze. And that's often a tough thing because one, at least one of those things, and probably two is a big feature in most of our lives for me i could i could give up booze i'd struggle but i could give up sugar i think i'd have a really tough time giving up coffee i'm exactly the same yep That's funny. definitely what kind of music stirs your creativity classical music and especially film music uh my mother i'm probably i mentioned this earlier on that my mother's a harpist and she did a lot of work for some of the big film composers like Jerry Goldsmith and Elmer Bernstein, George Fenton. And I really think actually that, and other people think this, so I've stolen this thought in a way, that film music is the classical music of the 20th century. So, huh. you know, each century that precedes, you have a particular style, like the Romantic period, the Baroque period, the Renaissance period, whatever. I wonder if, and there's obviously contemporary music, which is that experimental avant-garde uh, approach, which obviously is, is 100% authentic. But I wonder if film music is more definitive of the 20th century in terms of, uh, and more influential. I don't know. But I, yeah, that really gets me going. If I'm ever, even just to hear it um, without watching any of the films, it can, it's so moving. And I sometimes think the music can make or break a film. I agree with you. And it's also very inspiring to me. And I always, whenever I listen to film music, I somehow feel like um, my life feels really epic as I'm listening to it. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. Definitely. Yeah, I love listening. You're driving down yeah. Kawenga or something, exactly. listening to Lord of Rings. Yeah. Where are these orcs coming from? I know there's <laughs> going to be, where's Gollum? He's somewhere here. Yeah, exactly. What feeds your creative soul? Well, because my life really is driven towards building my career as an actor and creating as an actor, um, I'm sure it's just that calling that I really, really feel to be an actor and pursue it to the highest heights that I can, that I can do it. So the journey itself, constantly developing and moving from one project up and up and up, so it's bigger and bigger um, and higher and higher profile, that's exciting. Um, and, and frustrating at times when you're not where you want to be with your career as fast as you would like. Um, but the journey itself is, is, yes, yeah, is inspiring. 
And then just the person-to-person interaction. I look at the things I don't really know. There was not, when people say, what do you like about acting? There's not like a specific thing that I can put my finger on where somebody says, oh, it's just so fun, you know, being on set with all these people. Or, you know, I really love the drama. It makes me feel alive. Um, there's not a specific thing that I can say. That's why I love acting. It's, I really can't put it into words, but just the, the journey of it, the mission, the quest of it, that really feeds my creative spirit and the expression and the expression of it, you know, allowing something that's bigger than me and being part of something that's much bigger than me to feed into me and, and, and just contribute to that. That's, that's really, really very important to me. It's beautiful. And final question, what does creativity mean to you? Yeah, I think it is exactly that where they have a German word, I think, for it. I'm sure you know better, like gestalt, yeah. which is where you're the, um, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And I think that's a really lovely image as an actor to know that when you're on set, of course, you're the guy speaking the lines and dressed in the costume, blah, blah, blah. But you are one small part in, on that day, a much bigger um, organization of the cinematographers, the grips, the director, the sound, the sound, everyone, everyone has their contribution. That's huge. And then there's the way bigger thing of what it takes to just make a film from writing the script to fundraising, to getting the team together, then obviously the production to then the editing and then the distribution and the publicity to then it actually being on screens. You as an actor being part of something that's much bigger than myself and something that everyone really believes in and is passionate about. Yeah, that's, uh, and then just creating something that wasn't there before. That's, that's really a magical thing, a special thing that this film didn't exist. It was just, there was nothing. There was a void before this film existed. And then all of a sudden you work and you create it with other people. And now all of a sudden this thing exists out of nothing. It's, that's, that's really a, that's creativity for me.